everybody, it's Bevan. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. I've said to my name three times, it's time to start the show. I called to Biscuit Reynolds to come be part of the intro and he has chosen to continue sleeping. So we'll just have to make do <laughs> by pretending a snorty flat face cat is involved, but you'll hear him in my episode with Leah. He did make a snorty appearance. Um, this episode is so dear to me. Um, Leah Garza has been challenging my thinking about the world for years. Um, I met her in LA. Uh, she was, we have a, some dear friends in common, and um, but really didn't super connect one-on-one -on -one until I moved up here. And I just was like, hey, Leah, will you Zoom with me? Can we hang out? And Leah, this is her second time on the podcast. So I, my, I love this podcast because first of all, it's my show. So I get to decide everything that's on it. But also like, um, I love a second and a subsequent episode with someone because I get less into the backstory and more into the present reality and like their concepts of the world. And that's really what we dive into today. Leah has so much to say. She's challenged so many of my, the ways I think. Um, and I, I, I remember like, at first, when my reality would get challenged by things, I would get very defensive um, because it was dangerous to me, right? Our ego exists to kind of preserve a status quo um, and to like help make us safe in this world, well, or at least like that's kind of how the ego tends to act. Um, our ego is actually just a thing that helps us manifest like in its highest form. Like our ego is the thing that is like, when you're an audacious dreamer, you believe that that thing's going to be real. And like, that's like that ask, believe, receive part, right? That's the belief, um, and the connection. But when your beliefs are challenged and you need those beliefs in order to feel a sense of belonging or have your human needs, um, handled, that's very threatening for people but once you kind of get beyond defensiveness and you get really rooted into who you are um and that like just a simple idea change doesn't shift how you exist on the planet that you understand your inherent belonging just for being here because that's what i really believe and i believe that's what leah believes too um or at least what we talk about um i can't speak for leah but um it's just like you belong because you showed up and you're here right like every human is supposed to be here and um is welcome right and like we all are different, I think, by design. Um, and I think when we can look to the world with more grace and curiosity, everything becomes more fun. And frankly, I prefer life as an adventure. Um, and I think there is an adventure in consciousness when you open up to new and different ideas. So there are some really, um, I think, cutting edge ideas. Uh, I think uh, Leah Garza is one of the best minds of my generation. I think she is a visionary. And I am very excited to have her again on the podcast. We are talking about some real stuff here and I hope it opens your mind and I hope you consider a new way of thinking uh, because of this podcast episode. My last episode with her inspired me to start a weekly sesh with my glowing goddess getaway babes every Friday night at 5 p.m. It's like my favorite thing to do on a Friday is just, you know, use plant medicine with my friends and talk about reality and systems because I was very much I suffered a lot because of the systems that I believed in and that I was taught to believe in as a child, um, especially fat phobia. And Lee and I really get down with that later in this episode. And um, I believed in my inherent unworthiness and my undesirability because of how my body was, which now I just understand it to be so such an insignificant part of who I really am. Um, but it is a significant part to me, right? Like it's both like there's no value in me because of my body, but there is no me without my body, right? I don't exist in this plane of consciousness without, well, I mean, I exist in the consciousness, but I don't exist here as a Bevan without 
this little meat sack, right? Plus, like, I can't say wow and grab my cheeks without having a body, right? So um, one of my favorite emojis. Um, I'm, it, for those of you listening, I'm putting my hands on my cheeks and making a little wow face. Um, okay, so <laughs> where was I going? Oh, it's my intro to this podcast. So I hope this helps you have some wow moments. Um, we are now questioning reality just as a regular thing because it's a fun thing to do on a Friday night. And the more you stay questioning, the more you stay curious, the more I think fun life gets and the better life gets, because honestly, there's so many beliefs and systems that are making us miserable as a society. And I, a part of being a visionary is being willing to be disappointed by the way things are, but still holding a high vision for how things can be and should be. And I really, truly believe that the more you are more you, the more, um, the better life gets, right? The more I'm more me, the more it inspires you to be more you and to root into who you really are and what you really have to offer this planet. And I think that's our emergent timelines. The whole point of my podcast is to eventually amass thousands of ways to be a happy, successful adult. And I really hope that folks out there who were raised in super oppressive backgrounds and families with very limited uh, beliefs about what's possible get exposed to lots of possibilities. There are so many great possibilities out there. Um, I adore you. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, I want to remind you about the best way to support this podcast is through my Patreon page, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-K-D-P, which stands for Fat Kid Dance Party, which is my aerobics class for anyone who feels left behind by mainstream fitness. I believe everybody has a fat kid inside them that knows what it feels like to not belong. Um, And I think that really in impedes our sense of freedom and movement. And I have created a whole thing to help you feel free and fun to move. Um, It's an aerobics class. Part of my Patreon benefits includes access to on-demand videos that I film in the forest or on tour, depending on what I'm able to do. Um, I'm not touring right now because of the COVID, but we'll see if I can do COVID safe touring. Um, I'm open to all possibilities. I surrender, I surrender some more. I surrender again. That's my theme for April, 2022. Just surrender, I don't know. So there's a 10 minute, a 20 minute, two 55 minute classes, a chair aerobics class and a canna size class, which is slower, more repetitive choreography for use with an optional cannabis experience. Um, All of that plus bonus classes from body positive instructors I enjoy and a developing uh, library of self-care party videos. Uh, Right now there's an art therapy video that just went up so you can do some art therapy and canna size. Um, And there's more to come. I'm really excited about what I'm developing for that membership. Um, At any level of support, starting at seven bucks a month, you can come to any of my Zoom aerobics classes. Uh, And I also have a podcast of exclusive little episodes. It's called Bevin's Bites. It's just mini episodes, um, including some Reiki healings, meditations, and advice uh, that people have asked me for, all sorts of things. So patreon.com slash FKDP. Um, that is the reason why this can be my job, why producing this podcast can be a thing I do every week and prioritize because I am able to serve my membership. And so I appreciate each and every one of you out there who support this Patreon and make it possible for me to do this work in the world. Um, I appreciate, uh, all of that support. And I hope that I take that support and amplify it tenfold and put it right back out there and, um, add value to the world. I love you all so much. Thanks for being here. Please like, and subscribe and all the things um, because all of it helps. Uh, Even positive comments help like uh, an email telling me, you know, how this work has helped you. It's all, this is why I do it. I do it to make the world better and to make you better at being you. And so I hope 
this is a great conversation for you. I want you to imagine we're on a, a porch somewhere beautiful, overlooking a beautiful vista. You've got your favorite cozy childhood blanket curled up with you and you're on the porch with me and Leah on with the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Leah. Yay, thank you for having me. It's so fun. <laughs> I love to pop yeah. in with great enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> I am so thrilled. Usually I start business in the front, but I actually just want to start real business in the front and talk about something that you taught on an Instagram live a few weeks ago that has been like ruminating in my head, which mm -hmm. is this concept of like, we're in like massive global crisis, right? Like in mm -hmm. so many fronts, right? And it's, mm -hmm. if things go the way they keep going, we're not going to be able to make food in 20 years or grow food in 20 years. It's a major mm -hmm. problem. So, but you said by me becoming more me and you becoming more you, we open up emergent timelines. Mm -hmm. um, that has given me so much hope. And I would love for you to just kind of riff on that and kind of explain yeah. that a little more. Well, first, let me just say that that 20 year timeline I didn't make up. It didn't come from the Akashic no. Records. It came <laughs> from the IPCC report that came out in February, which is the UN panel, intergovernmental panel on climate collapse or climate change. Um, and there's a lot of figures in that report. That's one that's really stood out to me. Um, I definitely encourage people to go and do their own investigation. I don't actually recommend people read the actual report because it's like 4,000 pages, but if you Google like summary or the guardian article has got around a lot, um, th there's some good summaries out there. Um, but yeah, so in my in my studies, like I think, I don't know if I talked about it last time I was here, but I'm a PhD candidate in a decolonial depth psychology program. And so all the stuff that I read about and my specialty in my program is community liberation, indigenous and eco psychologies. And so everything that I read that I've been reading for like the last <clears throat> couple of years has been in those realms and when we're looking at non-Western ways of being, it opens up, <clears throat> it opens up like possibilities for responding to our situation that are not coming from within the house. Like they're, they're not, you know, we, we can open our imaginations and look at people and beings and systems from around the world and how they have sustained life for, you know, eternity or, you know, for as long as the earth has been here and we can use them as examples and, and, you know, and then simultaneously I'm an Akashic records practitioner and, or I'm going to use that term, but that's not exactly what I do anymore, but like, <laughs> um, <laughs> What, what the records have taught me is that like the thing that we come here to be is us, is, is the self. And we come here to be that self in relationship with everything and everyone. And we have a lot of choices between conforming to the pressures and which sometimes we do without even knowing. Sometimes we do because that's the safest thing for us. And then also like choose or choosing like what is resonant 
in our bodies for what we are here to do. And so the Western, like, you know, when, when we look at the, the enormity of climate collapse, even just calling it climate collapse, or even relegating this issue to just like the science of climate is really to negate the holism of the problem. Like, you know, part of the IPCC report talks about how like, if, if, the, if the planet raises in temperature by 1.5 degrees, there will be parts of this planet that are unlivable because they are so hot. And we're already seeing places in the Middle East that have gotten up to like, you know, 140 degrees. And, and this is going to cause mass exoduses. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. And movement of people across borders that are not ready to sustain those movements into countries that will refuse mass migrations. And they even, they're like the, 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 result of this can be mass genocides and we in the western world we don't factor in on a on a when we think of climate we really have like created this like picture of like oh that's science that's nature that's not a human problem that's like you know recycle more like stop using plastic straws we we we're not seeing that actually it's us it is it is touching us people um so that's one of the ways that like we separate ourselves from this idea of we separate ourselves from the climate but because we believe we're separate from nature in the western world and so and another another thing that we do you know like in in our culture is very like informed by capitalism and i don't mean like yes the money part and the extraction part but one of the the like overlaying like aspects of capitalism is transactionalism that like everything should be one-to-one like we we understand friendships and relationships in terms of like favors like I did this for you you do it for me we have concepts like networking like you know yeah this kind of like tit for tat um, reciprocal kind of transactional way of being And so we approach problems like from transactional perspective, like this is the problem, let's attack the problem. Instead of looking at like, this problem is is like the outcome of underlying issues, ways of being that are problematic. So what has become clear to me, and this may not be clear for everyone, but what feels very clear for me is like, we can't, it doesn't feel likely that in the time we have left that we can reverse climate change in the, in, in like by attacking it head on. What feels resonant for me, and again, I want to say just for me, because people have a lot of opinions on how we should deal with the climate. And so I'm not speaking for anyone else, but what feels resonant is that we must learn how to get into relationship with each other and the planet. And I don't mean relationship like from a charity perspective, from a, I don't mean relationship from a, from a hierarchical perspective. I mean, we must see ourselves as located within 
the climate and not outside of it. We have to see ourselves as a part of a living system ecology that like, we have to shift that, that, that every person, you know, I, I, I'm really into the work of this, um, this doctor, Dr. Neil Fees, and he talks about how, you know, I mean, there's a lot to it, but basically he's saying, you know, everything on this planet is comprised of the same kinds of atoms that self-organize into different beings. So like, you know, your couch is self-organized into your couch, your body self-organized into you. Like, yeah, exactly. And, but the atoms that make up you are, you have in common with the atoms that make up the couch. And so all we are, everything that is here on this planet is also a part of the atomic structure of this planet. And so stardust, we're right. Aren't we all what? just stardust? We're just stardust. I mean, yeah, well, like the, what that's saying is like, we have the same atomic structure. Exactly. And so we are this, what he calls it is like, we are the skin of the planet and we don't see ourselves that way. We see ourselves as the rulers of the planet separate from the planet. And so what, what I'm saying, what I'm proposing, and I'm not the only one, there are lots of people saying this is that we have to get into we have to get into an ontological shift in which we see ourselves as inherently located in that skin. Yeah. Um, something I just wanted to say that has been helpful for me to get out of the capitalist sort of colonial mindset of transactional, um, because being in, just in terms of studying like communication skills and relational intelligence, like transactional doesn't work, right? Like yeah. if parents, I mean, I think many of us are healing from toxic parents who are very transactional about their love. Yeah. Um, and I think the antidote to that is grace and mm -hmm. grace is just infinite, right? Like the, mm -hmm. and, and what I've noticed is the more grace I give others, the more grace I give myself, yeah. the more grace I give myself, the more grace I have for others. And yeah. part of the process of becoming more me is yeah. having grace with the process and having grace with all the parts of me that I don't find lovable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's parts of me that I'm like, I wish I could change, I guess. But like yeah. at this point, like when I was a teenager, I used to very fat girl thing, but I used to fantasize about cutting my fat off with a kitchen knife. Like mm. that was just something I would think about all that. If I could change it, I would. And now when my body changes, when I have a physical shift, cause you know, I, sometimes weight releases, right? Because yeah. of lifestyle changes I'm making or what, whatever. And like, I feel so neutral about it because I'm like, well, I guess this is what's happening, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it's all of the things that we think it, like, it's so funny. You know, I grew up fat. I've been fat my whole life and I don't even think, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain this. I don't need, at this point, I don't even think that I'm me. So, which in a, in a way is like, how can I have, how does that make me even have a, how does that make me have a better relationship with my body? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that like the stakes have dropped way low for me in terms of like how I hold my body in my mind. Like, like, like I just, I think about, I really do. Maybe this is why I, I'm a little bit psychotic. I really do think about like, we got 20, I got 20 years. 
I cannot spend it for me worrying about a thing that is going to stop me from doing the thing that's more me. And my body has been that thing for a long time. And it's funny, just this week, I joined a gym and I've been going every day and I'm like, I have no fucking desire. Like I'm not even aware of like calories or weight, or I don't know how much I weigh. Like it really is like this thing of like listening, like what my body wants to do is be like super ready to survive these 20 years. And this feels like one of the things I want to do. And I would never, and I, I would never tell anyone to go to the gym because it could be a battlefield, but like, that's what feels like I had to do it. And I, so I defy my own image of myself constantly because of what's going on in the world. Yeah. What are you enjoying doing at the gym? I love, well, I'm like working my way into the weight stuff, but that area of the gym is so intimidating to me. I really love, but I do love weight training. Like I just, I discovered this is, this is an ontological shift that I had. Um, I actually discovered that I love the feeling of the pain, especially like, like thighs and like, like glutes and like, like working that area and like, like when it really hurts, I'm like, I really like, actually, it's not like a normal pain. It's not like, you know, a tooth pain or a paper cut. It's like a different soreness that I like enjoy. And then I was like, wow, I didn't think that I was possible. I didn't think it was possible to have that kind of relationship with this kind of like body work. So that really shocked me. And and it shifted my story that I had about myself but I love doing, I have really bad knees. I love doing the elliptical. And I was telling somebody about how I like, there's a moment, like a psychological moment where like, it starts feeling like you're floating in a way. I don't know. So I'm having really like, I feel like this happened to me a long time ago when I was in school with math. I just grew up thinking like, I'm just not good at math. I just don't get it. And then I took this class called psychology of knowledge or theory of knowledge. I took this in high school and it shifted the way I approached math. And then suddenly math became interesting to me. And then suddenly I was doing well in math. And then now I had to like, let go of the story of, oh, I just don't get it. I'm just bad at it because now I got it. And now it was fun. And so like, yeah, I think I've had like a lot of experiences throughout my life where the story I held about myself, I had to hold very lightly because it would shift. And I think that's true for everyone. And, and, you know, as a person that sees clients, a lot of the stuff we work on is like, how tightly will you hold to the limiting story that you have of yourself or how much can you just let it, let it, let it go, like hold it loosely. Yeah. Uh, There's a good question you can ask yourself, which is, do you want that to be true? Yeah. And like, and, and that's a question, right? It's a genuine yeah. question. Do you want that to be true? It's, I grew up in a home that was very, this is the way it is very black and white thinking, which is a symptom, both of white supremacy yeah. and alcoholism um, is black and white thinking. There's a lot of overlap between those yeah. two symptoms. And um, I, the more I've just kind of released needing things to be a certain way and allowing yeah. being the observer of myself, like 
I've noticed a lot about my intuition, about how my curiosity is really kind of the biggest driver of my intuition and just being the observer and just being like, wow, I'm really curious about this person. Yeah. What's that about? Right. Like, I'm really curious about this information stream. What's that about? Right. Like, let me follow that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious for you, like, what, what are some markers for your intuition? Like when you're like, when your intuition is communicating with you, how are you connecting and receiving? That's a good question because at this point, what I, what I adhere to very strongly is resonance and resonance is a sensation of like a hard yes or a hard no. Mm. And for me, intuition can be more, more complex than that. Like, um, intuition can give me extended information about a circumstance or about why I feel a certain way. Um, Whereas resonance, like, so an example was, it would be like, you know, I had a really hard go of finding a job a couple of years ago. And I mean, really like just ridiculously, like, like I had at the time I had been teaching, I had a master's in, in education a teaching credential, and I was getting turned down for like tutoring jobs and like admin assistant jobs, like just stuff that I was overqualified for. And I finally got an interview And the morning of the interview, I was, I knew, I mean, if if you'd asked me, I would have said like, no, I don't want to do this job, but I've been programmed to like work. I have to work this crazy. You can't, you can't, you can't turn it down a job if you don't have one. That's insane. Like, like, that's not how I was raised. You just, like my parents would say like, we don't care if you like your job or not, you have to work. Like, that's just how it is. And the morning of the interview, I got really sick, like diarrhea, throwing up. And I just knew I was, I remember like being in my bathroom being like, oh, this is my body telling me, do not do this. Like this is resonant. This is a resonant no. This is a hard no. And I had never done this before. And I was in a moment, you know, like I was broke with no money and there's no good reason logically why I should have done this. And I like, I called, I like emailed them from the toilet on my phone and was like, I won't be coming in. I'm not going to take this job or I I don't want to be considered for this job. And my body just in a flash, like, oh, all better. Like you listened. Good job. And so for me, that's like resonance. Um, Intuition for me is, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I am a claircognizant person. So my strongest extra sensory ability is a strong sense of knowing and I can't explain it. But when I, when my, uh, that information arises in me as like, I just know a thing. I just know something I've gotten really good at, um, reading people's faces, like being able to look at a face and, and I think it has to do with doing so many years of Akashic work. Um, but like, I can just intuitively, I, I, you know, we all can do this, but we tell ourselves we can't, like, you could look at someone and be like, mm, I don't want to work with that person. Like you, we, we know, but, but we have these like ethical colonial morals that superimpose themselves. Like, oh, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, don't count the chickens till they're hatched you know, like d- don't make a judgment now 
and it's and what intuition is saying is like not make a okay don't make a judgment but factor in this first response that you're having and let that be true for you and so instead of ignoring your intuition and then getting yourself into trouble when you knew you shouldn't have taken a deal with somebody or worked accepted a job or you know moved into that one apartment or you know whatever the, the case may be so we have to like factor the intuition in as well as all the other pieces of information when a situation presents itself to us yeah i think for me with like clear cognizance which is my primary uh you know, perception, it's, I had to learn how to trust myself and like trust it, you know, cause it's the, I think we're really taught to be afraid of our own wisdom and our own knowledge and definitely, and our logic mind. Like I think into my, I love the definition of intuition, which is just information process too fast for the logical mind to understand. Mm. Um, right. And like, mm -hmm. but then of course, like if we're raised in colonialism and white supremacy, were raised with a lot of filters over people yeah. that create that become judgments right and like yeah how do you discern the difference between intuition and like judgment that's like created by systems um i don't i mean at this point because i've studied colonialism now for so many years i can i i am constant i'm like i feel like i have a coloniality radar like I'm con I can see it I can see I can see when when people defy their own desires in order to uphold a system I can see when you know like I can see when colonialism is present I just and I think it's because of studying it for so long looking at all the ways that you know, on a very like physical way in a very literal way, colonialism is about land, taking land in a less, in a more abstract way, in a more metaphorical way, not metaphorical, but in a more abstract way, colonialism is about the ways that our inner voices and knowledges and ways of being have been usurped by this value system that create was created during the time of modernism. So excuse me, I can see like, I can see when it's happening. The real question for me isn't like being able to discern it. Cause I feel like that part I've got down. It's like, do I have now the courage to make the decision in favor of what I need or what I want versus, you know, upholding the system. So a good example for me would be like, like, I don't shave anymore at all. Like I I'm like, I know enough about like the beauty industry and like the the hair removal industry I can never say the word depilatory industry <laughs> I, I can never say that like I know enough to know that like the natural state of my body has weaponized has been weaponized against me like with body hair um I would say that like I don't I'm not a I'm not a body that I don't have like a hairy body so I, I don't I'm not like victimized in this society the way other people are so it's a bigger deal you know like I'm not saying it's not a big deal but for me this was a thing where I was like I don't want to participate in that anymore like but it, early on I might have thought 
No, I love, I love, I love waxing. I love shaving because like, oh, it just feels good or it just looks cleaner or like, it's just, it's just nicer. Like thinking that those were real values that I actually possessed rather than I've been told that it's nicer, told that it's cleaner, told that it's more beautiful. And then I've bought into it so much that I will go out of my way to spend the money to do, to do this um, and alter my body on a daily basis to make sure that I conform to this. So, and I, I don't judge any, like, like really it's like, is it safe for us to defy the system in a given moment and go with ourselves? Because sometimes it's not safe. Um, is it, do we have the courage to do so? Do we have like the support to do so? Like if you're like with the, I mean, like my mom came to me when I was like in fifth grade, fifth grade, I look back and I'm like, I was like 11 and she's like here and gave me like a razor and a bar of soap. And I, I just think about like how young that is, especially after working in elementary for so long and seeing the, the developmental growth. And I was like, not a, I was not a femme kid. I was like, a. I wanted to live in books in my room. And like, I was not thinking of how people would receive my body or like how I thought of my body. And so like to just have that pushed in my face. And I know she did it from a loving place. Like she wanted me to she wanted me to survive this society and like learn this skill and, you know, but it, it, it presented like a hard growth moment for me. <laughs> like, this is what you got to do if you want to be, if you want to be accepted here. Yeah. I think that's a good, it's just good to be in inquiry with yourself. Like, is this really yeah. what I want? Right. Like I yeah. can tell you that all of my aesthetic, all of the work that it takes, I love it. I love, this is what I want. This yeah. is how I want to look. Right. And like, yeah, I like shaving and I, I, and I, when I got really um, queer and like feminist and I was hanging out with a lot of people who were not shaving, I was like, okay, I'm going to, and I wanted to conform yeah. to them. So I was like, I'm not yeah. going to shave anymore. And then I did yeah. it for like, a week and a half and I was like I hate this <laughs> I hate yeah <laughs> yeah you had you had like a container to support it if you wanted to no I like I don't you're not gonna are you posting the video or is this just gonna be audio that's the video too uh, okay so people can see me like my hair is bleached I'm not wearing makeup right now but I love makeup like I'm not saying I'm not posing a social justice um, like pushback on gender. Oh, yeah. I'm saying that like, I recognized in this, just for me, it showed up through shaving and hair removal of a thing that I was just like, I don't want to do that. Like just this one thing. And that I had the confidence in myself, the stakes were low, that that could be a thing I said yes to, but yeah, for sure there, I think there are like it's really hard because what I'm talking about is so nuanced and I can't convey it really in the language we're using, but I'm not, I guess, yes, I'm resisting the imposition of the like colonial beauty standards. Yes, you could go in that way, but also I'm like affirming that like 
one, this is what I want to do. And two, the way my body has grown naturally is okay. And I'm okay with it. And nobody else has to be, that's fine. And I don't think that I could have done that earlier in my life, but like, that's not an indication. I wouldn't, I'm not telling anyone else they need to do what I did. I'm not telling anyone, you know, like, I'm not, I would never say that to like anyone else. Like, it doesn't make sense. We all have to do the thing that is more us. Like, yeah, I am so far up the retinal, like, like spiral. Like I am like a skincare freaking person. And that's all beauty stuff. That's all like, you know, so I don't know. We pick and choose our things. Yeah. And that's, that's the best part about free will choices, right? Like the whole Mm -hmm. point of this earth existence is our free will choices. And yeah when we're raised in this like cookie cutter society where there's only one way to be one right way to be a person. Yeah. And and especially like a woman or like any specific marginalized identity. And there's all this safety that's part of it too. Right. Like I think a lot of how I preserve my individuation is by carefully curating a life where I don't have a boss. I don't have anyone I answer to other than God. Right. And that's a choice I made. And I very carefully curate my, my social interactions. So I'm not in places where I frequently feel unsafe and like, right. And and so it's like, I feel like I can be more of a freak and do my own thing. And, and that's a life worth living for me. Right. And other people who might want to be in a city or in a suburb uh you know enjoy your michaels i don't know <laughs> i love i love the suburbs so much it's fun to visit um, you know what i mean like yeah. i love a panera i like all you can drink iced tea and delicious yeah. salad but like you know it's, yeah i grew up in the suburbs and it just is it was a yuck i did too i did too um i'm still not yucked on it but i get what you're saying yeah uh, I don't live in a suburb. I live like in the midst of Hollywood and it's congested here. But but I there was something else I was going to say because I think like what I just said really came off as judgy about body hair and I really don't want it to sound that way. I don't know what, I don't know how else I could say it. It's like we live in a world where anything related to that kind of like body politics sounds immediately like social justice speak and that's not at all the world that I'm coming from uh, let's like, talk so about I, social justice speak let's talk about the concept okay. of social justice and um and all of that stuff and 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 okay. also like like cancel culture and how that has yeah. kind of infiltrated even this term social yeah. justice I think is different in 2022 than it was 10 or 20 years ago oh yeah for sure yeah um well i would say that one thing that i have come to is that social justice and decoloniality are not the same thing i do not mess with social justice anymore i don't work towards social justice i really um social justice to me is an acknowledgement within the world of colonialism that there is oppression and social inequity and we must do something to fight this and push back, which decoloniality does have that in common. But then social justice basically looks at like, well, how can we get fairness in this system? And decoloniality is really looking at like the system itself 
is not designed for fairness and it cannot be fixed because it's actually not broken. It's designed to stratify bodies, classes, races. I mean, it, it created race. It creates, so like, if we go back to that idea of like the skin of the planet, atoms do not define or separate themselves by race. It's a race is like a hundred percent a construct. And so when I say that, cause that got, that's kind of become like a hot, you know, like thing to say, but like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean that race is a construct? And what it means is that like the separation of people into races was used by early, like, um, you know, modernist era, colonial era explorers and, and kingdoms in order to sanction a free labor class, which is enslavement, they could, de they determined like this category of people who all happen to be indigenous and dark skinned will make very good laborers because we've examined them and we see that their intelligence has been below ours. Their ability to work is greater than ours. Their ability to like live in like hot temperatures is better than ours. And when I say ours, I mean like Western European um, kingdoms, people, men specifically. Um, and so then race was created and then there's a hierarchy within race and we can see like who was allowed to be um, free labor, like who, who, who was designated to be like a, a slave, an enslaved class, who was designated to labor and not have equal rights, but maybe not enslavement. And then who, there's even like a hierarchy within, you know, ethnicities within the white European world. Um, so, and then there's hierarchies within gender, there's high, and, and gender and race are not ever separated. So, you know, there's a, a famous scholar named Maria Lugones who talks about decolonial feminism. And <clears throat> what she's saying is that one of the things that she says is that um, the notion of woman and man was created at the same time the way we know it today was created at the same time the races were established because what is a woman is inherently what is a European woman. Mm -hmm. So if you are not a European woman, then are you a woman? And there's a, you know, a famous Harriet Tubman. Um, I said Harriet Tubman said, ain't I a woman? Yeah. And oh, yeah. Wait, no, Sojourner Truth, right? Sojourner Truth. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Ain't I a woman? And so like Maria Lugones would be like, no, she probably would answer no to that because you have to be white to, to have womanhood. Mm. Um, and of course there's not like necessary. I mean, there are actually books and doctrines that say what is what, but like today we don't have a written document that says who can be a woman and who can't, but we definitely have norms and social, you know, we have, we not just norms, we have policies, you know, we have like legislature that tells us like who gets, you know, reproductive health care, who doesn't, we have like, you know, the, uh, um, I forget what his name, Lonnie Walker Jr., who was, I think he was called the Grim Sleeper. Do you know who that is? No. He was, he was a serial killer in South LA and he, his, his crime spree spanned like 30 years. Oh, he, the black sex workers primarily. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And, and yeah. So he murdered, many, many black women in South LA and the cases all went cold because the 
LAPD determined them no humans involved cases. So like to be a black woman was to be stripped of your, even your humanity, like not even in the category of human. So all of these things have nothing to do with our inherent belonging on this planet. Like everything that exists, every person, every being that exists is inherently belonging here. And so if we can find a way and decoloniality is one of the perspectives that helps us like find pathways back to that belonging. Social justice often invites keeping those categories, but trying to find equity within them. And that just doesn't make sense to me anymore. And that's hard for me to say because I spent like almost two decades as like a social justice educator working in classrooms, like doing education organizing, working on like school policies, you know, work literally working with superintendents, working with like doing all this stuff to to get equity. And and now I and it sounds like maybe a little hopeless, like I don't believe that equity is possible but I believe other things are possible. And so, yeah, decoloniality and social justice are very different to me. hundred um, percent. Will you talk about cancel culture? Sure. What do you want to know about it? I mean, your thoughts, uh, just the general yeah. sort of, especially coming from someone who believes the systems can and should be dissolved. Yeah. Well, cancel culture, you know, we saw like a really, we saw it get really hot in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and the, you know, uprisings for black lives. And um, we saw like, at least I saw a shitload, a ton of white people immediately from their hearts want to do better. And what can I do? And we saw a movement toward racial justice that happened in that year. Um, and then at the simultaneously, we saw a lot of clapback from um, people of color and black people and indigenous people that was like, that's not good enough. And we saw people publicly dragged. We saw people, you know, essentially canceled what, what they thought was canceling. Um, and it, and a lot of what I saw was like people doing this in the name of abolition and I mean, I was definitely, I was afraid of like, because I have a tiny public presence, like, and my, and I've been known to talk about like political things adjacent to spiritual things that like, oh my gosh, I can't say anything. I don't want to say anything. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of what will happen to me here. I feel so frozen. I don't know what to do. Um, and so like time went by and I can, and this was like, I was in my second year of my program. So I basically had like a year and a half of, of studies under my belt. And I think like what I've come to is like cancel culture is exactly like that social justice thing of like, it sees that there's a problem. It wants to fix the problem, but the only way it knows how to do that is from using the tools that created the problem. So cancel culture, especially in the name of abolition, 
is using policing strategies and carceral strategies in an attempt to get rid of carcerality. And that just doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think like when I look at like what does make sense, which I'm, I don't, I'm not, I don't study abolition. I don't know the best ways. I'm not the person to ask for the answers, but what I, what I think we don't have in place is like a system of care. Like people here, everyone, everyone doesn't matter what race you are, what gender you are. Nobody in this country in the United States feels cared for. Nobody feels that they belong here. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of social privilege or not. Nobody believes that like, oh, well, even if I didn't do the things that I agreed to do socially, I'd still be cared for. Like if I, we saw like during the pandemic, 8 million people slide from middle-class to working poor or like into poverty and there's no care afforded. There is no, there's not even empathy or sympathy afforded to people that had that kind of transition. We've gone through, I don't know if we've hit the million mark, but we're nearing a million deaths from COVID. Oh, beyond a million. We're beyond beyond. a million. Yeah. And it's, and that's just recorded and they've always been not recording everything. So right. Exactly. I, my, I've understood it to be probably triple what the official numbers are. Jeez. I mean, there's no, we don't have a system of holding grief. We don't, we don't know what to do with people's natural emotions or needs, or we, we don't know how to care for each other. We don't know how to sustain life here in a way that reflects everyone's belonging. So, but what we do know how to do is try to attempt to meet needs through carcerality. So when we have public needs and we call the police, that's sometimes the best option that we have available to us. And it's not a good option. And so like when we're trying to create new ways of being together, we, we often fall back on what we know and that, you know, we, and this isn't the first time, I mean, look, look at like McCarthyism, look at like, you know, the 1950s and like after World War II and like the Cold War and like, you know, just all the ways that like, and then like even more specifically, like look at like redlining and like the way real estate has been um, purchased and sold in this country and who owns, like <clears throat> we, um, we are very exclusionary culture. And in order to abolish carceral ways of being, we have to build in some kind of knowledge that everyone belongs here and everyone's needs might be different and some people's needs cannot be met by everyone so for example like you know when when I was working at men's central jail there was there was this program it sounds so like bad and cliche now but it was called rage in a cage and it was like a an anger management for the like the highest um security um uh, detained people there, um, which meant that at some level, they acknowledged that people with very, um, high needs that have committed really egregious, you know, crimes, 
um, also have emotional needs. Like whether they were doing a good job or not, I don't know. But like, we we have to get into a an understanding of like everyone here belongs. Everyone has needs to be met. Some people can meet those needs, and some people it's not their job. So like, it's not everyone's job to have empathy for a rapist. But if we want to eradicate rape, we have to understand why people would do it and then try to meet those needs. And so like, you know, it's not, I think like what we do is we kind of like, we do this thing where we think that everyone needs to be on board with everything. And I don't think that's necessary, but like, so for example, clearly someone who's experienced rape is in dire need of support and you know resources and a container that can help them move through this experience so is the person who committed this this act but in a different way like from a different group of people and that's really hard for us to hear because we want so much to cancel people. Oh, they've done this. They're done. They're out. Disappear them to prison. We don't want to deal with them. And so we perpetuate, we perpetuate the, those acts of violence like forever because we refuse to look at, I, we refuse to look at what is needed there and who can meet those needs. You would never call on the person who has been raped to also be the person to caretake for the rapist. That's not what is, that's ridiculous, but there's some kind of like blending over or like glossing over where we think that like, Oh, care for a rapist. Oh, you're saying that, you know, that's what should happen. That the person who is victimized should care like, no, but somebody needs to deal with this. Um, I know I've kind of like stumbled over my words here, but I don't care like (laughs) it sense to me thank you I think there's a I really believe there's a lock for every key you know what I mean there's a heart for every situation and there are definitely like some badass social workers I know who like could do that work and hold that space for the rapist and who could hold the space for not and not the same social worker right but like but every person um, I'm really, I'm watching the show Euphoria right now. Like I know I'm late to the game. Have you watched mm-hmm. it? No. Okay. I can recommend <laughs> it. I thought I didn't want to watch it because I thought this is going to traumatize me, but it actually yeah. isn't. It's actually really great storytelling, which is why I got, my friend said, it's great storytelling. It's good art. You're going to love it. Yeah. And what I love most about it is it's showing the ways in which this is all generational. You know what I mean? Yeah. It starts in one generation, it's perpetuated yeah. and it can get worse until you choose you you by becoming more you and healing shit you know and not stewing in the things that got you where you're perpetuating harm right yeah and I think part of cancel culture is holding people to a standard that's above humanity and part of being human is fucking up and figuring it out and fumbling towards ecstasy from professor McLaughlin um will you talk about like your thoughts about trauma because I think that really weaves well into yeah I I also just before we move on to trauma like want to say like having care for a person who is a perpetrator of harm doesn't mean that we erase like community repair 
there. It doesn't mean that we erase accountability. It doesn't, I mean, that's a loaded word too. It doesn't mean that that person just, oh, you did a thing, you're off scot-free, poor you, you've also been harmed. No, we have to come into repair of our relationships. We have to attempt that. We have to like repair ruptures. So I just don't think the justice system is able to handle that at all. Um, and, and also, uh, as you were talking like, Yes, a person needs to decide I need to heal, but there are so many people that don't even know that that's possible mm-hmm. or don't, you know, like we don't have, we have a container that really tells people, you know, what was the, there was a bumper sticker that was really popular in the eighties. Oh, life's the bitch. And then you die. Like, you know, like we really like have some people have and because of the structure of colonialism, no hope for other ways of being because another way of being a healed way of being, and I, I am loath to use the word healing, but um, would mean for the state that now you're going to listen to your own resonance and you're not going to be someone that produces capital for the state. But if we can do things to ensure that you never seek hope, that you never change your circumstance, that you don't examine your trauma or whatever, then we know that you'll stay small. You'll stay in and out of prison. You'll stay in a labor position. You'll stay laboring for wages. You, you're like, and somebody is getting rich off of that at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I there's it's not just as simple as like, oh, we need to care for each other. How cute. <laughs> it's complex. And, and I actually like, um, I visited this autonomous town in Mexico in January and this town has like kicked out the federal police. They have their own municipal police. Um, They have a lot, like everyone within the town, everything is done communally. So decisions about who can move in are made communally. Um, The uh, dividing up land is made communally. Um, everyone has what's called a tequio, which is, we would call it like a community service job, but it's not, it doesn't have the same denotations for them as it does for us. Like community service here is like court appointed or a requirement to get your diploma or, you know, it's not, it, it, it's not looked at as like a, an you know, something you do with pride or something that you're like, what? And so like talking to some of the people in this town, they were like, we're really honored to clean up the streets once I'm honored to go pick up trash once a week. I'm honored, like people depend on me. They want me here. And, and so like, when I think about, when I think about cancel culture on that spectrum of like carcerality, we don't have that sense of belonging here we don't have like you know an investment in what can i do separate from the fighting policing but like what can i do to invest in my community and and how can i offer my gifts and how can i receive the gifts of others how can i be supported how can i give life and receive life here and imagine if if we had that knowledge what we would build at the same time that we're dissolving carceral, you know, institutions. Um, 
Yeah. So oh, wait, the question was about trauma. Trauma? Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> so I, I made a post recently that I basically said that, well, let me back up. So I think about trauma a lot for the last like several years of my life. I read a lot about trauma. I dabble very lightly in like the world of somatics, very lightly. Um, but I think about, yeah, community trauma, intergenerational trauma, epigenetics, like all these things. Um, and then I have like my own relationship with the Akashic Records around what trauma is. And there's so many ways, prescribed ways in our culture to like heal, heal your trauma, do this sound bath and heal your trauma, do this thing and heal your trauma. And for me, you know, um, I, it just, just doesn't work. <laughs> like, I like doing those things. And it just, it hasn't made the shift that I thought it would. I haven't, it, like, that hasn't happened until I started rethinking what trauma is and what my relationship is to it. So what I've come to is that like trauma isn't the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. It's the default. It is the nature of our container. And if it's the nature of our container, then, cause there's one element of how we work with trauma in our culture. That's like, get rid of it, heal it, get rid of it, go back to normal. It's abnormal to have trauma. Like just this idea of like escape it, be pure. And to, to think of it as like the default means then that is the state that I came here to experience. And so if I'm not, if I'm no longer in like this tug of war, trying to heal something that's unhealable, what can I put my energies into now to create? Like what, what would happen if I were to go on into my trauma responses and let that be my natural state of being it would make people uncomfortable but what if I don't care about other people's comfort like what if something is trying to work through me and I'm not giving it the opportunity to because I've been afraid to be publicly a, a traumatized person or a person with PTSD or you know whatever the thing is and so I was in this Akashic Records class and one of the questions, I don't know why, I don't remember the question, but the answer to the question from my records was trauma as a concept is no longer useful to you. It was like lick your, it said lick your wounds and enjoy the pain or something like that. And that's how cheeky they are with me. Like <laughs> trauma, like just this big, oh, just this big thing I've been working my whole life on. I've been in therapy off and on since I was three years old. And you're saying just enjoy it. But yeah, it, if I've been, I'm 42. And if I've been in therapy since I was three and I continually need it, then something isn't working the way it was designed or I'm exactly right the way I am. I don't know what, but it feels more likely that I'm exactly right the way I am. Um, people do not like that post because people make, I mean, I got for weeks and weeks, I got DMs about like, this is irresponsible and you shouldn't say this. And like, um, 
we really build and cultivate an identity around our trauma. And, and so what, what, what I was saying in that post was like the identity that has been cultivated for me when I buy into my trauma is that I have limits. You can't do that because you have PTSD or you should not do that because it's going to trigger you. You need to like, make sure that you have like your ice pack and your snacks and make sure you do that. Like they're all, there's now like an, like a, a, like a, like a medicalized identity around what is possible for me. And that felt incredibly limiting. So I am done with that. (laughs) I love you for everything you do. And especially once I realized like Leah Garza exists to help me understand the world better in a more visionary way. Cause like, I think something that I've understood from your discussions around trauma and just the concept of trauma is that like identities have always, I mean, I'm a person whose website has been queer fat femme since 2007, right? Like, so like I found actual queer fat femmes in the world who I'd never been exposed to before. I didn't know it existed until I was like 22. And I suddenly felt at home. I was like, oh my God, that's me. And I didn't realize that that was true. But like what I realized too about like trauma and diagnoses and like, I recently kind of became aware that my brain is an ADHD brain, which I was very resistant to any kind of diagnosis for many years. But now that I understand it, I understand myself better because it gave me a path of inquiry. And that's really what I think trauma helps do, what identities help do. It gives you a path of inquiry to understand yourself better and to get more information. Um, Because like in this like cult of normalcy, right? Because the idea of normal is just incredibly toxic, which I learned from you. Like this, there's like this one size fits all way you're supposed to be a human. And if you deviate from that in any way, you are dangerous and wrong. And once I realized there's all these paths there's all these paths and like, you know, and like the, my experience of PTSD is really different than I think others. And I, it's all good. But like, once I learned about like the vagus nerve and like things I could do like that ice pack thing fucking works, you know what yeah. I mean? Like I can bring my yeah. body back into her chill and that's yeah. where she wants to live just like a bird chilling and tweeting on, on a stick. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. I just love the way you kind of push these envelopes and like push against these concepts and I don't know now that I understand you as a person who helps me understand the world differently I'm like the idea of trauma wow you know what I mean yeah and I love that your records are sassy with you they're very sassy I don't I don't um this this is like what decoloniality does to you if you really 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 let it in is you get rid of binaries so for me to say trauma is not useful as a concept that doesn't mean that I negate my trauma. It doesn't mean that I don't continue to like interrogate it. It doesn't mean that I don't walk with it in my life, but, but it means that like the concept, the story of who it has told, told me I am and the concept, the story that society has created around what a person with trauma can do. That's not useful to me. That doesn't mean it's not useful for other people. So it's like the binaries have to go like, oh, if it's not useful to you, then you're saying that we don't need it. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for me, that doesn't make sense. But for other people, it might make sense. So like, you know, you you mentioned like in 2007 is when you started your website. Yeah. Queer Fat Femme. Yeah. 
And that was the time when like knowing our identities and being in relationship with other people with our identities. And I'm going to say literally a time period, like that time that was so critical. That was so, so critical. But let me ask, do you ever feel the limitation of that identity? Massively. I think there's been a period of time where I haven't been writing much there because of those limitations. I was like, I'm so many more things than that. And when I declare, like I, there's a a thing called an Ariki, which I learned um, in a book by Lovey H.I.E. Jones. Um, It's called Professional Troublemaker. It's the first chapter. It's really good. And it's a Nigerian um, practice where you name and give qualities to a child and you declare it over them at every major milestone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she walks you through how to write your own Ariki and like figure out what's important to you as an identity mm-hmm. and like how you want to be in the world. It's like a pump up speech in yeah. many ways. Right. And yeah. so I, I declare it every day to the oldest tree in the forest, what my identity is and who I am in the world. And as someone, um, something I learned recently about Pisces, like, um, like if you have a strong Pisces placement in your chart, I have a Pisces South node. So that's the mastery I came in with. Pisces is the last sign of the Zodiac. So it has access to all the personalities of the Zodiac. It's a very, um, it's like, it's masking. You know what I mean? I'm very adaptable. I can do anything. I was a great lawyer, right? But it wasn't my destiny. It wasn't my path. My gut told me that all the time, right? And so I realized I was like, rooting into my chosen identity, the one that is me that's coming through that feels right for me, the resonance. Yeah. Fear, fat and femme are not in my Ariki, right? Like yeah. those are just parts of how I am kind of within this outer world yeah. that gave me home. But I also realized in that I can't necessarily trust a queer fat femme just because we have that similarity, like that we could be yeah. fundamentally different and she can be, or they could be very dangerous to me, you know, yeah. like, yeah. so recognizing my resonance in the world and then trusting the vibrational connection that I have with other people rather than being, being through identity politics. But I do think you're right. There was a period in time, especially early internet period where like those identities were so helpful for organizing because there just weren't that many, but now that all the kids are queer, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody's queer. You guys like everybody. Yeah. So it's not like a, it's not like the fight is kind of gone because now it's so, yeah, I feel this deeply about fat as an identity and I don't want to, well, I can't help it if I offend some listeners, but like I, I have always been a fat person and yet I've never felt that that was an identity of mine Mm. and not because I somehow think I'm magically thinking myself into not having this body or like like I just I just I always felt this like this how do I say this I'm not a fat person I'm a response to fat phobia so the things that we would identify or, or that I would identify as like a fat identity. They're all ways that I've like survived fat phobic culture. It really has nothing actually to do with my body. It has only to do with the way the culture has determined my value in this society. Mm. And like, I would always say like, I'm not even a fat person. 
I'm just a person, but everyone has determined that I'm a fat person. And so like, to me, I'm like, that's, I refuse to let that be my identity. That's just not who I am. Like my response, my survival response is not who I am. It's not my identity. So I just never like took that on. Um, But I don't, but again, like that doesn't mean other people can't take it on. I like, I, I just, I'm just speaking for myself, but yeah, I, identity is, at this point to me, like identity, I'm, I'm not, not my identities in some worlds I am. And that's like how people, you know, like when I was teaching in Compton, I am a white, I'm a white Mexican person. And I show up as a white lady in a black and brown class. And I can't, no matter what I say or think about myself, that doesn't change the identity that those students are like seeing in me. And then that, that doesn't change no matter what I say or think about myself doesn't change the, um, the power dynamic that is created when a white person is in charge of a black and Brown classroom. Mm. So yes, in those circumstances, identity and for me to be like knowledgeable of my identity, how it shows up in power dynamics, how it shows up, you know, like in a school setting, I have to be aware of it. I have to like know where I fit into the ecology of that classroom. I have to know how I can constantly undermine that identity so to bring about like equality and equity in the relationships in the classroom. So it serves me to know my positionality, my identity in those times. But when I think about the ways that that inherently limits what I is possible for me to do. Like, I just don't, I just don't identify Like identities feel incredibly carceral to me. It's, it is carceral inherently because if you're walking around in identity other than who you are, just like Bevan is my favorite identity. You know what I mean? Like once I really sort of fell in love with myself, I, it's like, I almost don't want to be perceived. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like yeah. Yeah. walking through the world as a fat person. I do not consider what other people think of me. Yeah, I exist to bring delight. I love wearing cheerful bows and looking cute and wearing a cute outfit. And like, if I'm going to go see a friend, I'm going to vibe into that, that feeling yeah. of that friend. And that's yeah. how I pick my outfit. Right. So I may dress to connect, yeah. but I'm not existing for the perception of anyone. Like one of the most right. powerful things I learned through femme identity actually is like, I don't exist for the male gaze at all. Right. In fact, yeah. I want men to never see me. And I, in fact, yeah. do spiritual work on myself to shield myself from yeah. all gaze, especially the male gaze. Right. And yeah. so like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, I have just, and, and I think there's a beauty in my self-worth and my self-perception at this point, where it's just beyond processing or wasting my mental energy on what are other people thinking of me in this moment? Yeah. This is like, I am, this is, this is what you're saying is like exactly why I'm obsessed with disgust and like the colonial roots of disgust. And like, I relish being disgusting to people because what that means, like what that means is that something in me 
just my existence has triggered in another person the fear that they are unloved Mm. like something in me that they find disgusting is really a fear that they hold about themselves and and this is like why one of the fascinating and tragic and awful things about fat phobia is that like the closer in proximity we are to fatness the more we are we risk being unloved by the container of society the more we are we risk unbelonging because fatness is like been determined as like a this marks you as you don't belong you're unlovable and i you know for a long time of course as a child you know as a young person that just wants to be a part also i had like a distinct desire to not be a part of things but but like wanting to be you know loved I would want to distance myself from any concepts of disgust like being a young fat girl on your period at school and you don't know what the hell to do with hygiene like like I would want to like just hide just be so far away from that and I I think because of my work in the records which is constantly affirming that you're loved constantly like there's nothing you can do to make you unloved basically in existence there's nothing you can do and so like I started to really like explore like what is disgust and I'm not talking about disgust like if you like open your milk to see if it's still good and it's rancid you're like that that's a natural instinctual response to to like you know oh don't don't drink this it's not safe I'm talking about disgust for another human being. So like if you, you know, see a person with like an open wound or like, you know, when when we feel disgust for somebody, that's a cultivated learned response through our society that has tried to tell us who fits in the category of normal and who does not. Mm -hmm. And if we can determine who's normal or where their relationship is to normal, then we can determine that person's value in society. So the more disgusting you are, the less value you have. And I know from the records that just can't be true. So let me investigate what is disgust. And I, I started to realize like me being disgusting is like the ultimate magic that I can do because it's like spell work. It's like, if I, in my existence, bring about or elicit from you a response of disgust, that means that I have manipulated your consciousness in this moment. I have like alchemized some kind of energetic work here to bring you into a state of being where you are questioning your belonging. Mm. So go there, go deep down that rabbit hole, like go as far as you can. And you'll see that at the very bottom of the pit of disgust is actual beauty because everything that exists in this natural ecology is like inherently a beacon of beauty, like every blade of grass, every frog every you know bug every person every like there's something inherently beautiful I want to cry just thinking about this like something inherently beautiful everywhere so like disgust is such a fallacy so so yeah that is a little bit of like my um 
what is it when you like to inflict pain is that sadism or is that masochism i don't remember sadism. okay sadism. it's a little bit of my sadism to be like enjoy being disgusted by me mm-hmm. question whether or not you're loved because that sounds like a lifelong struggle that you're going through and and because it has hurt to be cons- like to experience fat phobia for so long i'm gonna relish for just a minute you thinking or remembering that you're, you your fear that you're not loved but if you really pierce through that you'll find that you're inherently loved so go all the way into disgust i love that i also love the the inherent belonging we can have once we recognize that love that you talk about from the records or from god or however you you source that inherent love that we all have and that we are all love and that we are we exist to create love and as we love ourselves more and become more ourselves and like that is how we create these emergent timelines right like it's just that tying into that one universal life energy um i have some rich lesbian friends who um got some mail from the southern poverty law center who did like a big map of all these hate groups Uh and um i was like wow but they were and they were talking about like it's so sad you know to think about all that coordinated hate and i was like yeah but nothing can beat love and love is the most universal force there is and love is the antidote to everything it's the antidote to fear the antidote to disgust it's the antidote to non-belonging like we humans exist to be in relationship with one another and the planet like we breathe because the trees breathe like it's literally a a transaction that's constantly happening but it isn't one for one it's an infinity loop like right we're not Mm -hmm. breathing in from one tree and breathing out to another tree like it's all it's all commingled right and so when we recognize that this love is just rising through us and it exists and like me going to the gas station and talking to a stranger is an exchange of love energy and yeah. up leveling the planet you know what i mean and just recognizing yeah. that either everything matters or nothing matters yeah. i choose everything and i choose to be more me so that i can affect the planet because i know i can't yeah. put out all these dumpster fires but i sure can work on the one that's in front of me yeah that's funny that you say that because i choose nothing matters that's like <laughs> That's like one of the most relieving things that I've ever. Yeah. Um, I love this. I love that you choose nothing matters and I choose everything matters. It brings the stakes down. It brings the stakes way down. Um, The records. Yeah. The records are like one time said to me that like, even in places of war, love is present. If love wasn't present, there would be nothing to fight about. There would be no reason, you know, whether or not, we're all on board with that love or we have the same opinion of what to love that's a different thing but like the the fire that's required to fight for something is an indication that love is there just because we like fight for that thing and enact violence okay that's something different but like love is just never absent like the records also said like there's no such thing as unconditional love because love by its definition has no conditions there's no unconditional love is a construct that you all have made because you feel so separate from it but it's it's not that's not what it doesn't exist yeah leah i think this is a good place to stop we could talk forever (laughs) 
I know. Um, I love you so much. I hope I that you will too. be on the podcast again. I would love to. It's um, so fun. How many books, this is the last question. How many books have you read so far in your PhD program and how long does it take you to read a book? Oh my God. I don't know. I have like, I have like four or five shelves on my bookcase and then like several stacks. I'd say there's at least 120 books here. And some books you whiz through and then other books, like I have this book here. Oh man, I love this book. It's called The End of the Cognitive Empire by um, Boaventura de Souza Santos. And I mean, it could take me days to process like two pages because it's so rich and dense and yeah. So it, it really depends. Wow. Yeah. I'm excited for your books. Um, I I kind of think academia is bullshit, but I love that you have found a place to, to sharpen oh, all of the it. brilliance that you have. I love um, academia. I'm already like, what will I study <laughs> after this PhD? <laughs> I think there's a freedom in just choosing the study, right? Like yeah. once I, I law school really burnt me out from yeah. reading entirely and learning entirely. Yeah. And then once I got back into a heavy, like it's a personal growth plan, honestly, like just a rigorous amount yeah. of knowledge acquisition. Yeah. Um, it has really helped my mental health a lot to have something to be yeah. aiming for and knowing that like, I can maybe read 4,000 more books in my lifetime if I'm, if I take a speed reading course and get better at reading faster, yeah. but yeah, just, I mean, we shouldn't discount like audio books and even like, you know, when you expand what the definition of a text is, mm. then a text can, you can read the world. You can read like, you know, movies, you can read YouTube videos, you can read audio. You, like, so we shouldn't be so focused on the written word and as, as a, as a path to wisdom fair yeah. I mean conversations like this even just yeah. showing up to listen to a good podcast um yeah and so Leah how do people find you on the internet to stay connected to you yeah um you can find me on Instagram at crystals of Altamira you can find my website crystals of um but if you go to Instagram that has all my links okay. too like if you want to book a session with me or you know I have a a database of free decolonial articles and, and books and stuff. So people can access that through my website or through my Instagram. Awesome. Yay. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, Bevan. So cool.